Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we saw since the last time we did one of these. My name's David. I'm Tyler. And no, I can hear it in your voice. You were tired. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long day. Yeah, you spent you spent the day walking around Disneyland. Yeah, and uh, and before before that, I, so here's the deal. I was on a podcast. I won't say here because it's political in nature, and I'm sure our listeners aren't interested. <laughs> uh, but it's a big deal for me. I was very excited. I got to talk to somebody who uh, I admire a great, a great deal. Um, but it was such a big deal for me. It's like, okay, we're starting at 9.45 a.m., Oh boy. And so I went to bed early for me, three, and uh proceeded to wait. I woke up at six and then six forty five and then seven thirty and like just because that's what happens because I get so terrified about oversleeping. Sure, yeah. I set my sense. I set my alarm clock, I set the alarm on my phone just to be sure, and uh everything was fine. Yeah. But uh so even though I went to bed early, I would not say the sleep I got was quality sleep. And then yeah. right after I recorded that show, it was down to Anaheim and walking around in the in the hot sun, although it wasn't that hot today. And then ninety minutes in the car and I show up just in time to let you in. Yeah, it was perfect timing. So um yeah, so I'm a little uh, little phased. Speaking of early records. Okay. I was in your old neighborhood recently, oh. as were you. Um, because my wife celebrated her birthday at a bar, uh, pretty much around the corner from where he used to live. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not too far. Not far. Um, and I passed the, uh, donut place at, um, can I say, I can say the intersection now. You don't sure, live there yeah. anymore at, uh, Victory and Whitset mm-hmm. on the Northwest corner of Victory and Whitset donut place. And it reminded me of the time that I had to be at your place. At 8 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. To do a Criterion cast episode. That's right. About uh, David Mamet. It was, yeah, it was Homicide and House of Games. Yes. Is that what we did? Yeah. And it was, yeah, with, uh, it was when uh, Ryan from Criterion cast's daughter was first born, I think, because Moises was hosting. Right. And so it was me and Moises talking to David Mamet at 8 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was a uh, pet peeve of my dad's when people would say something a.m. in the morning. Oh, yeah. Fair uh, enough. He, he, he hated that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned, and, I mean, 945 isn't super early for most people. It is for you. Yes. But it reminded me of when we did a, an 8 a.m. podcast. Yeah, never not, again. We're not doing that ever not again. My, like, I, not my guy. I get up at 545 in the morning. Yeah. 545 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, oh, my. Uh, uh, most days. But I'm still not. I'm barely ready to go sit at my desk at work and have a cup of coffee. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> not ready, uh, you know, um, to, to talk about David Mamet at eight o'clock. In the morning. I don't think, I still think you, that episode went well though. It went very well. I was yeah. very happy with that episode. Listeners, you can find it somewhere. I'm sure. Um, I, I have no idea. Uh, it might've been taken down, but now you were going to say something about me. Yeah. I'm on the, I'm on, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm on tenterhooks. I don't, I don't think of you as a coffee guy. Do you drink a lot of coffee at, uh, at work? Uh, a lot. No, I drink coffee twice okay i drink one right when i get in because mm-hmm. I be, it's at that point it's a little after 9 a.m and i've sure. been up since 5 45 a.m walking the dog making breakfast uh working out doing all the things that i do in the morning that right. require me to get up at 5 45 on the medicine ball don't around. have to be at work until after nine uh i mean i technically i'm supposed to be work at nine um i don't ever ever show up at nine but um, it's a good thing you have not told a single soul at your work that you have a podcast otherwise they might well, they all know there. I'm not there. Like most people aren't there. And oh, okay. my, my office is very like very loose. 
it's kind of like, I mean, if I showed up at like 11 every day, eventually someone might say something, but also if I still got all my work done, okay. Like, I don't think it would be that big a deal, Yeah. but that's why, uh, I work, you know, I technically start work at nine. I get there by nine 30. No one ever complains cause I get everything done. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, the, one, the, one of my bosses of does listen to, the, to this podcast. So, um, really? uh, yeah. Uh, so, I, uh, what's the boss's I, name? I'm not going to say I'm that. I'm going to throw out a little, uh, no, but I do name, I, his first name. No, I'm not going to say that. Henry. Um, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> I'm listening not even to gonna the say show. If it's a male or female, but I, I will say to that person, I'm joking about showing up at 11. <laughs> I would never actually show up at 11, okay. but yeah, like 930 doesn't seem to cause any problems. All right. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, who knows? Uh, anyway, I'll um, leave it up to you to keep track of. What so yeah, I have a, a cup of coffee right when I get to work. Um, and then I will usually have a cup of coffee after lunch to, mm-hmm. to, to combat that sort of post meal drowsiness you get yeah. at work. Cause you know, I got work to do. I'm already a half hour behind mm-hmm. <laughs> from showing up late. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I got to drink some coffee after lunch to keep myself from, from, uh, zoning out. I um, don't think of myself as somebody that coffee will affect, like it will keep me awake. And then the other day I went to, Den- as tends to happen, I went to Denny's, but I went midday, not midnight. Uh, mm-hmm. so I went to like 1 PM Oh no, that's not true. I'm sorry. It was closer to 11 or 1130. And, uh, I was not hungry. So I had four cups of coffee instead. Oh, you call coffee on an empty stomach. That is turned out to be a bad call yeah, that is for a, bad a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, not the least of which was, uh, I had somewhere to be at five and I was sleepy. And so I was like, I'm going to take a short nap before I have to go to this thing. So I lay down and, re- and realize my eyes aren't shutting. I just like, I, it's like, I'm like, objectively speaking, I am tired. And yet here I am and my mind is just racing. Yeah. And not to mention I have to wake up like every, uh, I have to get up every 20 minutes to pee because four cups of coffee. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah. And so I realized I need to, uh, I need to cut this coffee with something, you know, like food. Oh, okay. So, (laughs) so it does affect me more than I thought. Um, yeah. You know what I've, uh, found though that I was just, when I, when I was describing my morning, I realized that. I still don't think of myself as a morning person. I still think of myself as a night owl. Yeah. But if you look at my actual morning schedule, like I said, I get up at five 45. Yeah, you do a lot mornings. of shit before you have to get yeah. anywhere. Yeah. And I don't even sleep that late on the weekends anymore. Cause I have stuff to do and I don't even have kids. Yeah. Like imagine if I had kids, That'd it's like, but I don't think of myself as a morning person. I still don't go to bed very early. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, the end result is that I don't sleep that much at all. Uh, would you like to know a fun fact? Is it going to be fun? It's mildly interesting. All right. right. I don't think of, I still, to this day, I do not think of myself as somebody that wears glasses. That's not strange because I didn't get them until I was 19. And so the other day I was like, I did my, my glasses were not next to my, uh, they weren't on my nightstand. I left them in my office. And so I walked around without my glasses, which is not that big of a deal because I'm, I'm nearsighted. So it's not like I'm bumping into anything. Okay. But, uh, I realized that like it was the, they were the first thing I was reaching for Mm -hmm. and they weren't there and I didn't panic or anything, but I, their absence made me realize, Oh, they're a necessity. Yeah. 
Now, I've worn them every day since I was 19. So that's 15 years. But somehow... This is a new revelation. That's interesting. Even, even for me to say my glasses, it just doesn't sound like... It sounds wrong to me. Huh. It's hard that's to... It's, it's It's strange, right? Uh, yeah, but that is You've worn glasses as long as I've known you. Um, but not that much longer than you've known me. Okay. I got them when I was about 15. Okay. Uh, and I was against it at first. And now it is an inextricable part of my identity. And I actually like thinking of myself. No question as about a, it. Yeah. Uh, I, I like being a guy who wears glasses. Yeah. So much that I would like, I would never ever get contacts because I'm, my face is one that I think of as having glasses on. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to be a guy who didn't wear glasses. Uh, I have, I've done a num a number of, uh, like, you know, videos for YouTube and stuff like that, where I'm just sitting in my office, I'm just using the, the computer camera and I don't wear my glasses for that because they just reflect the screen at that point. Okay. And so you can't see my eyes. So, and that's how it is for the majority of, of those videos, if not all of them. Mm -hmm. And so for all intents and purposes, somebody, if they knew me only through those videos, they would think of me as just a guy who doesn't wear glasses, you know? And uh, so it would be probably weird for for them to then see me in glasses. As for me, I look back at those videos and I think something's something's wrong, something's off. Oh, I'm not wearing my glasses. It is a it is a vital part of my face. And Jen actually prefers me with glasses. So because she says, you know, I look smart. She didn't say that. <laughs> uh, so. It's the one thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's talk about movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I saw. A really cool movie at the, um, now you've been to the Egyptian theater. I have. Have you been to their smaller black box theater in the Egyptian? The, I have. The Steven Spielberg. Yes. Uh, theater. So it is where I saw the death of Superman lives. What happened? That's the full title. Yeah. I don't, I've heard people say that that way. What happened that way? Mm -hmm. I don't know what that's a reference to. Oh, uh, it's a reference to, uh, I believe it's a reference to a mighty wind. That makes sense. Fred, Fred Willard. I've never seen it. Oh, um, yeah. David, this is an exciting day for you because I believe it? I own it. And I think you would enjoy. First off, I think you'd love the music in it. OK. Uh, but also, I think you'd like some of the performances. And there's uh, some nice uh, emotional stuff going on that I'm not that is not standard with uh, Christopher Guest. Stuff. For, yeah. You know, for some reason, I just think I think Best in Show is one of the funniest movies ever made. So much so that I kind of had this feeling like I don't need to watch other Christopher Guest movies. Like I love Best in Show so much that if the option is watch Best in Show or watch a new Christopher Guest movie I've never seen before, I'm probably going to go with Best in Show because, as I said, it's one of the single funniest movies ever made. Uh, I agree with you. I think it is probably it's definitely his funniest, uh, though I did do Missouri Community Theater. Uh <laughs> I think a mighty See, no. wind kicks it up a notch because we're adding uh, a level of creativity and a level of quality because he tends to make movies about characters that are not good at things. Uh -huh. But, you know, there are some there are some genuinely beautiful songs in a mighty wind, but then there are also some goofy songs because it's all about folk music and that can kind of run a spectrum. And it also but it also shows like you know, these, the petty jealousies and that sort of thing. It's, it is a very, very good movie. I, I would say the best in show is his funniest. I think a mighty wind might be his best. Hmm. All right. Maybe I'll check it out. 
Um, but I was thinking, speaking of Christopher Guest, and then we'll actually get to the movies at sure. some point. But at least we're talking movies now. Yeah, absolutely. I remember you saying on this podcast many moons ago uh, that you often felt from like the film fan community a sort of unspoken pressure to say that Pulp Fiction is your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and then you have to, and then whatever else. Do you, do you remember talking it's, about this? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have described it as a pressure. It's more just sort of a knee jerk instinct of like, it's like, well, what, what's your, uh, what's your favorite, pul- uh, your favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino movie? And it's just like, well, pop uh, Pulp Fiction, obviously. But aside from that, it's almost like right. Homer Simpson being your favorite character on the Simpsons well, or Al Swearengen being your favorite <laughs> Deadwood character. It's like, yes, that goes without saying. Number See, two is I, where the real argument um, comes in. Yeah. I, I've never felt any of those. The one I did, I had, I did feel for a long time was the, well, waiting for Guffman is Christopher Guest best. Sure. And then, and then best in show. Yeah. But it's only like in the past five years, maybe more that I've realized, uh, no, best in show is better than waiting for Guffman. And I would watch best in show. I watch it every day of my life. There is, I recently rewatched it. I always say that, sorry, uh, I'll let you finish, but I always say that the two funniest movies of all time are Airplane and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm. I kind of think Best in Show is like nipping at their heels. It is a, it is a class. I can watch it front to back. No, there's no parts that I get sick of. I can watch it any, at any time. I was at a convenience store today and I was, uh, looking for, uh, I was getting some water and I was looking for uh, a snack to eat in the car and I was in the, uh, I was looking at peanuts and stuff, and I immediately just started going pine nut. <laughs> and I literally, and I thought, and and I thought like, you stop naming nuts. Yeah. And just like I, that scene is so marvelous. Oh uh, well, the one that I think of is macadamia nut. That's, That's the one, the one, one that, that always her made her. I was all set her <laughs> going crazy. Oh man, that's a, that is a. Beautiful character. Yeah. I love that. I like Will Sasso. It's like, if you get tired, pull over. If you get hungry, <laughs> eat something. <Yeah. laughs> All right, let's talk about yeah, this sure. movie. The, the, these two movies, actually. One of them, a short film and then a, a feature that I saw at the Steven Spielberg Theater. It was a, it was the closing night film of the uh, L.A. Ola showcase, which mm-hmm. was a uh, multi-night, multi-venue showcase of contemporary Spanish cinema okay. in Los Angeles. I think they showed stuff at at um, at the Egyptian as well as at the Echo Park Film Center, and I think at one of the place. Uh, I didn't realize that's what it was when I went, by the way. But I'm glad that I uh, mm-hmm. I just read about this movie and it sounded cool. Um, it was a co-production of, of L.A. Ola and uh, Los Angeles Film Forum, and uh, the the feature was called Dead Slow Ahead. The, okay. the short that preceded it, I'll mention real quick, was called We All Love the Seashore. Uh, it's about 18 minutes um, about, um, and now I forget what uh, country, but it's about um, people uh, in a poor country hoping to immigrate, or I guess emigrate to uh, to Spain, I guess, because it's a Spanish country. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's mostly them just sitting on the shore talking and then they get in a boat. It's kind of, it's kind of an impressionistic little okay. uh, short documentary. And then the main movie is called dead slow ahead. And it is unbelievable. It's yeah. so great. It's also, I guess a documentary, but you could also just call it a sort of experimental film. Okay. Uh, this guy, it was just him and a cameraman. Uh, I found out, uh, cause I stayed for the Q and a, I don't normally stay for Q and A's. There are two reasons I stayed for the Q and a. Okay. 
It's a very small theater with very narrow rows and the people to the left of me between me and the aisle were also staying for the Q and a, and it was like, well, I'm about five and a half feet from the director of the movie. Yeah. It's going to be a spectacle if I try to get up for the Q and a also, I love the movie, but also because it was a closing night, I found out Oh, if I stay to the end, there's a wine and Spanish tapas reception in the courtyard afterwards. I can get free wine and empanadas if I, uh, listen to the Q and I'm glad I did. It was, it was a good Q and I do like that from time to time you do seem like a classier frat boy where it's just like, <laughs> instead of like, it's like, Hey, free beer. It's Oh, free wine and empanadas. All right. Now we're talking. I'll stick around. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically the director and a, and a cameraman, I think, which is a two person crew got onto a cargo ship, like a captain Phillips type enormous mm-hmm. cargo ship. Um, uh, although I guess it's not that kind because it doesn't have the, uh, what are those called? The shipping containers. It's not that kind. It has yeah. like huge vats. Like the opening part is just scenes of the, these cranes loading like grain and stuff into these huge vats. Like these things that, that are, I mean, the, you see people standing in these things to the size of like cathedrals and there's yeah. multiple of them on the ship. And so they fill those up and they take them from, uh, wherever they left from Spain, I'm guessing, um, to new Orleans. Um, and, so he just shot stuff over the course of, I think, two two and a half months that he lived uh, on this boat and shot this stuff. Um, and it sort of, it definitely, I think, invites comparisons to the, I guess, quote-unquote documentary uh, Leviathan from 2012. I don't right. know if you ever saw I that. I did not see it. That's brilliant. Um, but that's, it is, uh, the comparisons are easy to make because it's a sort of non-narrative documentary of sorts um about a boat like Mm -hmm. that's what both those movies are but uh leviathan is a very very different uh aesthetic and is about a fishing boat whereas this is a shipping uh thing that's it's just massive and it's more austere you know whereas leviathan is about getting in close in every nook and cranny and trying to see the boat as almost a living organism um this is uh much more grand and slow it's only 75 minutes which is amazing you shot for two and a half months and <laughs> edited edited it down to a 75 minute movie um but it's uh, completely hypnotic um there's uh the the one major event that happens is at one point the ship starts taking on a bunch of water hmm. um not to the point where it's ever in danger of sinking at least that, that's not the impression that i got but it does get a bunch of the wheat wet right so there's a whole part where they have to, this is where you see them in this, uh, you know, in, they open up the top of the thing and mm-hmm. they have to scoop out this wheat and like keep it in other places in the boat to dry it out and then dry the area out and then put it back in. Um, and there's a shot that is so beautiful. And so like, we're on, you know, we're on a boat, right? But the shot is from above of this storage, vast storage vat. And it's just a guy standing with a shovel on top of all this wheat, but the wheat is brown and it's so, it takes up so much that it goes to the ends of the frame. So you're not yeah. seeing any of the boat and you're seeing a guy standing on wheat in the sun. You would think he's standing in the middle of the desert. Yeah. That's exactly what it looks like. It looks like a guy suddenly <laughs> we're on this boat. Suddenly there's a shot of a guy standing in the middle of the desert and it takes you a second to realize what you're seeing. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, and uh there's there's the i mentioned the 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 cranes that you see at the beginning like picking up grain or whatever and dropping it in Uh, and that's the first shot you see is 
at night the empty floor mm-hmm. of one of these vats and then a bunch of something uh i don't think it's grain because it's like black it's like i don't know gravel or something hitting the thing and you don't again it's like the thing before you don't really realize what it what, what it is it almost looks like a shadow scattering on the floor before you like mm-hmm. can recontextualize and see what it is but he said that he had 20 hours of footage of just the cranes moving <laughs> and again, this is a 75 minute movie how do you even begin to decide yeah oh that's the best one yeah i mean hang on yeah. let me watch uh 19 hours and 58 more minutes of footage just to make sure yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I think, I mean, between him, like, because the, the boat, you see, like, the the log and everything, it's, uh, it was from 2013, and the movie, I think, was finished last year, so mm. he's spent, I guess, a couple of years uh, getting it to where it is, uh, but it's called Dead Slow Ahead. I don't know how you'll get a chance to see it, but I'm really, really glad that I went to, to the Egyptian and saw it. All right. All right, what's up for you? So, th- okay, officially, this next movie is a rewatch. But for all intents and purposes, it's my first time seeing it. I saw it when I was a kid. I retained virtually none of the uh, of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I did that out of order. All right, you did. Oh, okay. I'm I'm doing mine out of okay. out of order for maximum effect. Okay. Uh, so, and so I, what I watched was the Rankin Bass version of The Hobbit. Um, I've never seen it. Yeah, and again, yeah, I saw it when I was a kid. There was in watching it again. I was like, okay, I, some things came, some things came back into my into my mind, but other things definitely did not. Um, and it's it's fairly short, you know, uh, compared to the nine hour epic of the Hobbit. It mm-hmm. is, uh, it seems, you know, pretty uh, cut down, but at the same time, it is appropriate. Um, I think that they they might skimp on some character details and that kind of thing. But I'll tell you one thing. Much like in uh, the Peter Jackson Hobbit films, in which the Gollum scene is maybe the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, holy shit, this thing is great. I can't... like. In this in this movie, it was probably in the area of eighty minutes. You know, probably maybe even less. Um, a, a significant percentage is spent on that golem scene. Like there are some things where they'll just kind of turn it into a montage and get us get us going. It's every little moment of that golem scene is there, mm-hmm. and golem kind of looks like a frog type character. And the guy they have voicing him now, I didn't know who this was but uh he was something of a pop culture figure in the 70s uh named known as simply theodore but uh credited here as brother theodore um he was a sort of a comedian and a monologist in the sort of in the in the vein of a spalding gray oh okay um but he i don't remember exactly where he's from but he does have something of an accent it might be german uh so uh, after I watched the film, I looked him up and, and I saw there's a lot of YouTube clips of him being on like Letterman and that sort of thing. Uh, one in which, you know, in the early eighties in which he's talking about how he thinks that uh, America needs a dictator and he go and he starts saying all of the reasons why he thinks America needs a dictator. And then he sort of, he never declares it, but it quickly fades in that he is the one that will, sh- that should be the dictator. Uh-huh. 
and uh, and it's actually quite delightful. But his his version of Gollum, as much as I love Andy Serkis, I will say that you know it, it would appear that Peter Jackson, in in the way he wrote Gollum and in the way he chose to direct Andy Serkis. He was kind of shaving the edges off to make Gollum a bit more obviously pathetic. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, this movie, Gollum is a monster. He's a sad monster. He's a pathetic monster. But there is no question that he is particularly creepy. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, he's just sort of always on the verge of, of screaming. Like, it, I can't even uh, really describe it. I would, I would, it would be morally wrong for me to try and do it uh the the scene is on youtube so you can find it there but i would also say just you know for three bucks rent the hobbit on amazon overall it's fine but that scene the way it is done is an absolute gem that is a scene that if a kid were to watch it you know i can't imagine any kid watching the lord of the rings films or the hobbit films the the peter jackson hobbit films and coming away being scared of Gollum. You watch this Rankin-Bass thing, and mm-hmm. the Gollum scene is a living nightmare. It is great. The All movie right. is fine. That scene is great. Okay. So the thing that I uh, actually watched before, um, Dead Slow Ahead, and I like to do these things uh, in order. Uh, you remember last week on the Movie Journal, I talked about watching uh, Jan Truel's The Emigrants, and I mentioned right. that it was half of a two-parter. Uh, so I, I finished the other half called the new land, um, which I think is, uh, even better. I think than the immigrants, they really are just one movie. They work together, but if I had to pick one that I liked better, it'd be the new land. Um, uh, to refresh people's memory or people who didn't listen last week, uh, to clue you in the immigrants, the first one, uh, followed a, a group of Swedes in the late 1840s, I guess around 1850, um, emigrating uh second time i've used that word mm-hmm. um but uh going from uh from sweden to uh the u.s and uh, it's the first one is like three hours and 15 minutes and it it ends with them arriving in minnesota where they're gonna uh, set up their thing so it's all about you know the first hour takes place in sweden and then um the rest of it is about i uh, get more than an hour takes place in sweden and the rest of it is about the the journey including the harrowing sea journey that's all last week sorry i'm spending too much time mm-hmm. on last week this one is about them in america um and it's uh it's it, it's 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 really a beautiful you know idyllic look at uh uh at at uh, American, you know, frontier life. Uh, but then also terrible things are also constantly happening because this was an unsafe and unsettled, uh, place. And, um, the frontier was a very dangerous, dangerous place. Uh, and so you get long sections of things are going well. His, uh, the main character, Carl Oscar, Carl Oscar, uh, played by, uh, Max Fancito, his farm is thriving, doing better than his farm in Sweden was. You think, Oh, it's a good, this was a good decision. And then something terrible will happen, mm-hmm. uh, that I, I don't want to give things away, but, uh, I'll give, I'll, I'll talk about one, one, uh, extended sequence. Uh, it's a big part of like the second hour, I guess. Um, at the beginning of the second one, Carl Oscar's younger brother, who has also come across with him, decides to leave the farm and go to California for gold. And he's gone from the movie for a long time. 
uh, an hour and a half or so. Um, and then he comes back, um, and he's got a bunch of money. It's like, oh, I guess things went well. And he's saying things went well. And then we get these flashbacks that are almost completely wordless mm-hmm. and really almost completely soundless other than music, um, detailing at length what his journey West was like. And it's terrifying and yeah. it's awful. And he almost dies multiple times and people do die. And it's, uh, just harrowing and dreadful. Um, but of course he's not telling that to his, uh, older brother when he comes back. And that's, that seems to be the, if there's a point to the new land, I'm sure there is a, there are plenty of points, but if there's, if there's a, if I can boil it down to one, um, it seems to be, the movie is saying, yeah, things went really well for them in America and they put down roots and they, their legacy lives on to this day. But also a lot of really, really terrible stuff happens. Like in, in the first one, you know, not everyone who gets on the boat makes it to yeah. America. You know, like a lot of really, really terrible things happened that wouldn't have happened if they stayed in Sweden. So I guess you decide. <laughs> That's kind of what yeah. the movie is saying. Uh, and I really like that, uh, that sort of um, open-ended uh uh, view of, of the, of the journey. It's not, you know, it's a movie that's very moving and sweeping and funny and romantic and all these things, but it also doesn't tell you how to feel about anything. It's, it's not, uh, sappy or sentimental. And who directed it? Jan Troel. Okay. Uh, he um, also did a, this is a, a criterion release criterion also last year put out, um, uh, his earlier film here is your life, uh, which stars the guy, the guy who went to California, that mm-hmm. actor, is the star of Here Is Your Life. That's also a really good movie. All right. So I watched uh, X-Men Apocalypse. You can find my review at BattleshipPretension.com. And it is, at times, very good. I don't know if I would ever say it was. it's great. Uh, at times, it is very good. At times, it is only okay. And once or twice, it's not that good. But for the most part, I liked it uh, quite a bit, partially because, you know, at this point, because I didn't love Civil War, um, obviously I did not like uh, Batman versus Superman that much, um, and I was starting to really kind of feel that superhero fatigue that people mm-hmm. talk about, um, because just like, oh, there's just more of these things, it's just going to, ne- it's never going to stop, like... You know, but at the same time, I find myself looking forward to you know Doctor Strange because it could feel notably different than the others, and that that might help. Um, and that's the thing: while we are just inundated with movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know these X Men films are every few years, mm-hmm. and I think with this one, I think it really solidified that like the X Men series has had its bumps in the road, you know. But it's pretty solid, and I like how consistent it is. And that the thing that bothered me, the big one of the things that bothered me about Captain America's Civil War is that for the first half hour, there's like a philosophical debate going on, mm-hmm. and then that gets that gets pushed aside for something much more tangible. Uh, the X Men movies have always been about a philosophical debate, and they ne- and I was rewatching. Uh, the 92 animated series and it's there it's in the comic books it's in the animated series and it's in the movies having xavier and magneto be you know this is a very standard thing to say but like have basically the the martin luther king and the malcolm x 
about right. of how do we get acceptance and and it just keeps going and with you know and it never feels old because there's always new circumstances and by with the with kind of with first class being what i would consider a soft reboot and then and i say a lot of this in my review and days of future past sort of being a passing of the torch the the reboot has been firmly established now with X-Men Apocalypse sort of being the first full-on here-we-are kind of thing. Wolverine is pushed to the side. He was often kind of put front and center. But by pushing him to the right. side, we now have Xavier Magneto for, right there in the... But isn't that... I mean, First Class had almost none. It just had yeah. Wolverine and a Rebecca Romaine cameo. Yeah. No, I mean, I just... I mean to say that, like, these three movies working, working okay. really well together. Um, so do you think... Do you think that we are done with movies where... With Patrick Stewart and uh, Ian McKellen? I think so. Okay. Um, I think they have... I think Days of Future Past was a very, very good way, as as, as I said, of passing the torch. And um, and so now here we are in this new uh, X-Men universe where they can... Because now that it's something of an alternate timeline, they can bring in characters that we've already become familiar with and they can do with them, with them what they want. Um, but I think what I like about it, about the film is that, you know, this philosophical difference is right at the, right at the forefront and James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender are doing really great work. What I think I really like about this film is that it ends on a note of what would seem to be triumph. Like the, like, you know, uh, with the, the basically the denouement, like the, the conflict is over. Uh, we are now setting up the next movie. Apocalypse is in prison. Right. Yeah. He's, he's in the County jail. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's like, Oh, I never thought about bars. Um, so, so they're setting up the next movie and kind of just putting a button on, on this. And it seems like a moment of triumph. You know, the, the music is, is heroic and all that, but the very last shot of the film is so is so not merely dark but melancholy and i mm-hmm. think it's mel and it and it ends with xavier and i won't say what it is but it sort of hints that you know the longer you do this the longer you fight for you know the longer you try to employ concepts of pacifism and reconciliation and that sort of thing uh often in the face of evidence that the people against you are really terrible um, it does chip, it chips away at you. And the Xavier we see at the very end is a guy who has been thoroughly chipped away at, and he's not going to show it to anybody. He doesn't show it to his students. He doesn't show it to Magneto. The last shot is just for us. And while the music, while Brian Singer w- does play it as like for the audience, like, Oh boy, this is exciting. Look where we're headed now. When you see the look on James McAvoy's face, mm-hmm. And I think this is on purpose by Brian Singer. I don't get a lot of that. I get a, oh, wow. Xavier has had to make a big compromise. And he's not happy about it, but he sees it as a necessity. And I, X-Men Apocalypse is far from perfect. There's a lot of great moments in it. But the the fact that it still finds new places to go for these characters and still finds new ways to 
to play up this fo- philosophical difference between them yeah. uh, is is still exciting to me. I always like that the X Men have fewer like less of fewer big bads like less of a rogues gallery than yeah. other superheroes because it's mostly infighting yeah that's what i always liked it's, it's yeah. mostly they they're all like any like characters go from being on the quote-unquote good side to the quote-unquote bad side and back yeah. and forth all the time i love that uh, a couple of questions is does the deadpool movie take place in the same universe as these x-men movies officially yes okay but okay um and another question so this is in the 1980s, this movie? 83, yes. 83. So it's... We're supposed to believe there's only 17 years between James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart, right? 17, oh, yeah, I guess so. Because X-Men yeah, I guess so. came out in 2000. Well, so you're saying now. in 17 ah. years, he's going to go from looking like this to looking like Patrick Stewart in Let X-Men. me say this. At the very beginning of the first X-Men movie, it says, The Not-Too-Distant Future. So though it was made in 2000, okay, it doesn't take place. It takes place sometime in the future. Okay, just long enough for James McAvoy to age into exactly looking like Patrick Stewart. Exactly. All right. Well, that's good. And right. I will say, as far as big bads, um, Apocalypse, they do what they can, but he winds up being kind of generic. Ah, that's too bad. It is a bummer. How is now? I am not um, very familiar at all with the career of Olivia Munn. Okay, but I like Psylocke. Is she good? Uh, she's kind of a nothing character. I mean, she, you know, visually she looks good. Um, and they do make the character fairly powerful, but I mean, she has virtually no dialogue, you know, the, I think that's, that is kind of, uh, an unfortunate byproduct of, uh, of focusing on Xavier and Magneto is everybody else sort of is, is relegated to, especially the bad guys, like, you know, Angel, Psylocke, and even Storm, but they give her a little bit more to do. Um, they're just nothing characters, just like Sabretooth in in the first movie. Hmm. You know, he's just you. You they're basically um, pared down to their powers, right. and then that's it. Right. Okay. Um, moving on. All right. I saw. I'll talk about the first half of a double feature I saw on Tuesday at the New Beverly Theater. Okay. Uh, well, first I'll mention they started with a short, uh, as they do with the New Beverly. Mm-hmm. This was a Mr. Magoo short called oh. Magoo Meets Frankenstein. It okay. was delightful. Mr. Magoo's... How long did it take him to realize he was meeting Frankenstein? Oh, he doesn't at all. That's Ever? the thing. Okay. He's completely oblivious. Yeah. He's traveling through Europe. He mistakes Frankenstein's castle for the Hilton that he's supposed to be staying sure. at. So it's just like, it's like a five-minute short of Mr. Magoo sort of blithely mistaking everything in the castle for a hotel amenity while Frankenstein is trying to kidnap Mr. Magoo and put his brain into Frankenstein's monster's brain. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and of course being foiled at every turn just by Mr. Magoo's, uh, uh, just, just walking around. I don't know. It's, uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, I don't want to say it was the best part of the night, but, um, it was better than the first film, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, The first film was called, Amok is the official title as how it's being advertised. So the on-screen title on the print was Maniac Mansion, which is a better title than Amok. I think you could pretty much yeah, say... It's a video game. A, uh, Maniac Mansion is a yeah. video game? Oh, well... A computer game that would then go on to be a... 
the sequel of which is Day of the Tentacle. Maybe you don't know what that is. I don't know either of those things. Big deal for me. I'm guessing that this Maniac Mansion predates the computer game. Probably. uh, Because I think it's from 1972 or something. That's true, yes. Um, And it's just uh, sort of standard, like, uh, 70s sort of erotic horror. Uh, It's mostly American cast, but it takes place in Venice. It's uh, a woman young woman uh, takes a job as a, a secretary assistant uh, at the uh, Venice uh, Palazzo of a famous American writer, uh, but she has an ulterior motive because her, turns out his previous secretary was her good friend and she's disappeared. So mm-hmm. this woman has come to Venice to take this job and try to find out what happened to her friend. Uh, and it's not something awful happened, of course, because this guy, it turns out, is a... Uh, uh, a creep and he has orgies and drug orgies and oh, there's wow. murders and there's all sorts of uh, uh, people being drugged and I guess drugged into lesbianism. There's a lot of, um, a lot of that sort of thing. Um, it's pretty hot. It's, it's, here's the thing. It's not it actually, the last act is actually uh, pretty good. It, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's the rare movie that gets better as it goes. And, you know, more often movies tend to fall apart as they go on. But I actually like once it actually comes into focus and we see okay we get the story of what happened and we see them trying to do the same thing to her it actually is going somewhere um but it's kind of a slog it's mostly about it's just this kind of excuse for yeah uh it's an exploitation type movie but here's the thing i want to talk about about the new beverly and i i really love that we have the new beverly um here in los angeles but also there's something about because they're showing everything on film, mm-hmm. right? And they're showing stuff often, as I understand it, from uh, Quentin Tarantino's collection. Because Quentin Tarantino, for those who don't live or here or don't follow, Quentin Tarantino uh, owns the New Beverly. Um, opinions on that set aside. We did, did an episode with right. uh, someone who has opinions on that, and that was a good episode. Um, but so sometimes I get the impression with some of these uh, older like grind grindhouse type exploitation type movies that they're not showing this because they found a good print. They're showing because they have a print. Right. And this print was in real bad condition. If you ever, a muck is uh, apparently a very difficult movie to find, but if you ever do get a chance to see it and you want to recreate my experience, I would say, watch it through a bottle of pure grenadine. Because this thing is so faded, you know, the way that Eastman color fades, it's pink verging on magenta most of the time. Mm. It was in really bad shape and it just flattens everything out. uh, And it kind of, that just like, it has the opposite effect of Pepto-Bismol, which it looks like, and it makes me nauseous. (laughs) Um, uh, It's, it's, it's too bad, but also I guess, I don't know, I don't know where, I don't know where the trade-off is. Is it like, Am I glad that I get to see this movie in any uh, form because it's a tough movie to see? Yeah. Uh, I, I I don't know. But, I mean, it's, it's still, it's a it's cool that we have a theater. Like, even though I'm not a 35mm purist, it's cool that we have a right. theater that only shows film. And it's cool that a double feature is eight bucks there, you know? Yeah. That's amazing uh, in, in Los Angeles. I will say, and I'm sure this is not going to uh, win me any friends, were I in your your position there, watching that movie that way, faded and gross, my first thought was like, boy, I'm sure glad I'm watching this on film <laughs> and not uh, digitally, right. where it would right. look... It's just but like, this is a movie that I don't think has been restored. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, 
yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a trade off, I guess. Uh, I would love to hear people's uh, opinions. Actually, sure. Uh, sure. chime in in the comments. All right, what's next for you? All right, so this is the the third and last movie that I watched over the last week. Sorry, everybody, I have not been watching a lot of movies. Um, so, David, it's been an Oscar Isaac kind of week. A couple of friends and I watched Inside Lewin Davis, which I have seen before. And here's what I'm going to say. Get ready for some hyperbole, David. Okay. But hyperbole that I completely believe. Uh, I am of the opinion now, having now having seen Inside Lewin Davis a second time, that it is maybe one of the five best movies of the 2010s. Okay. Um, I think it is absolutely genius. I think it is perfect. I think it is... It's it's emotional. It's sincere. Um, it's gorgeous. Like I forgot. Like I remember. I had an, I sort of remembered how good it looked. Yeah. But in watching, it's like this is. It's not merely they just kind of bleach things and make everything a little, look a little soft. The way they then plug the color back in uh, yeah. is really interesting to me. Um, the performances are just top notch, and just this. It's just this perpetual dreamlike world where he's just coming in and out of these different circumstances. And, you know, some of them are a little bit pleasant and strange. Some of them are just abrasive, like the John Goodman, uh, section. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it just ends in just this beautiful fashion. And I just, I can't get my mind around it. And I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, at the time, uh, in 2013, I listed inside Lewin Davis as my third favorite movie of that year behind enough said and her i think i i think i will firmly say that it's my favorite movie of that year and when that's in you know in uh, four years when we talk about the best movies of the last 10 years assuming we are still doing the show sure alive yeah and on a planet where there are other people sure wow i guess there are a number of other assumptions that could be made uh but yeah those are the big ones let's go with those um Assuming all those things, uh, I can imagine, you know, maybe something will come along and, and, and convince me otherwise or whatever. But as of right now, I mean, I think watching it a second time, the next time I make my top 100, I think it'll probably be in my top 50, maybe my top 30. Who's to say? Um, well, you are. That's true. It's up to you. <laughs> that's true. Perhaps I will say, perhaps I will not. I don't know. But... Um, I cannot get over just how astounding the movie is. And what's more is that in some ways it is completely Coen brothers. In other ways, I find myself surprised that it's the Coen brothers because mm. it's not often that we see that level of heart from them. Like we'll see it with Marge Gunderson. We see it a little bit with uh, like Tommy Lee Jones in, um, mm -hmm. No Country for Old Men. But for the most part, it's not a thing we see that often. I, I tend to, as much as I love them, I do tend to think of them as like arm's length uh, directors. Um, yeah. This is a yeah. film that is right there with Lewin Davis. I, I can't remember the last time that a movie of theirs put us so deep inside a character um, so that it is his perspective 100%. Uh, I, I genuinely love this movie. I might go so far. Once again, hyper, hyperbole. This movie is a masterpiece. You're probably right. Yeah. I saw it twice in short succession. Okay. 
because um, I saw it at AFI Fest and then a couple weeks later when it came out. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw it at AFI Fest and then I saw it on Christmas Day. So I guess that was about six weeks apart. Um, and then I haven't seen it since. No. So uh, I should I should revisit it. It holds I, up. I love it. Yeah. All right. Uh, the next movie I saw, the back half of that double feature and the reason I went to the New Beverly that night um, and mostly did not disappoint. I saw The Blood Spattered Bride, oh, nice. uh, a movie I'd wanted to see for a long time. Uh, I'll say, unfortunately, this print also wasn't in the best condition. But after what uh, after what uh, I'd sat through with the muck, it was definitely a, a welcome change. But um, man, The Blood Spattered Bride is a crazy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean it's not like I mean, at some points it is over the top crazy, but it is it's it's exploitative and uncomfortable um in a way I wasn't expecting. And so I definitely, as we talked about on some past episode, was it phases or something like that? I, I do tend to get points for audacity and for mm-hmm. a movie going. So a movie that makes me go like, Oh man, <laughs> I can't believe they did that. Uh, uh, it, that always gets, uh, knocks it up, a uh, uh, bumps it up a few notches for me. So the blood spattered bride is, uh, um, there's a there's this bride. There's this uh, couple. They're they're married. Uh, they have not um, consummated their relationship, um, and they get married. They go to stay at his um, the at the husband's ancestral estate, um, and he immediately reveals himself to be uh, an ungenerous to the point of sadistic and controlling uh, mm-hmm. lover. Um, the early sex scenes, um, which are essentially become like assault scenes are, uh, really, uh, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then does it feel slightly exploitative at all? Uh, I mean, it, yeah. And like when, when he, when he like the night of her wedding, he like rips her wedding dress down the front, right. you know, so she's, uh, uh, topless. Like, yeah, I, there's definitely a lot of that. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, you go to see a movie called The Blood's Better Bride, I guess you can sure. uh, yeah, get what you pay for. Um, but then she finds out the legend of one of the women in his family history, a woman who married into his family mm-hmm. and killed her husband on her wedding night um, because he was a brute. Yeah. Um, and then that woman, that bride from 200 years ago or whatever, starts appearing to our bride. Hmm. And starts the the lines between dream and reality start to blur. Where she's not sure, and eventually we're not sure which things are happening in the dream and which things. If this woman is actually manifest in the real uh, in the real world, um, and it yeah, it gets uh, creepier and creepier as it goes on, and it's uh, it's actually like I guess there is a, a fair amount of blood in it, but there's also a lot of. Uh, implied uh gore there's off the top of my head there are two implied castrations uh in the movie well at least uh, they were implied yeah uh but there's also just like it, it i love movies that manage to be it's almost it's why i've always liked uh david cronenberg and like body horror mm-hmm. i love movies that manage to unsettle me in ways um and creep me out in ways that i wasn't expecting yeah so there's one part because, oh, it also has, like, there's also vampire-type themes going oh, on. okay. Um, so at one point, our heroine has uh, 
sliced her hand along the inside of the knuckle on a, on a blade, you know? Ooh, yeah. Okay. She like grabbed the blade and, and it cut her right uh, along. The, so she's got a bandage on uh, her hand and her hand balled up. All right. Get ready to get grossed out. Okay. The woman that appears to her, right? Mm-hmm. Undoes the bandage and then pulls her fingers out so that the wound reopens, splits <sighs> back open. Okay. And then the woman leans forward and sucks the blood out of the <laughs> wound on the hand. That's one of the things that happens in this movie. And it's, I don't know, like, if you, I would have been somewhere between the expression that you're making right now, yeah. which is cringing, and also, but somehow with an enormous smile on my face at the yeah. same time. Sure. Because uh, I just, I, I, I love being surprised by that sort of thing yeah. uh, in, in a movie. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really can't say enough. Uh, enough good things about the blood the blood spattered bride it's uh, that one's i think a lot easier to find than a muck and i've also uh much higher recommended okay and then i've got one other thing which is a movie i saw last night the new uh this is not out yet um uh not it comes out in a few weeks i think uh the new film by benoit jaco um who his last film was Three Hearts, which I liked but didn't love. Uh, but in 2012, uh, he made a film that I spoke very highly of on the podcast and in my review called Farewell, My Queen mm, yes. with um, Lea Sidhu, uh, Virginie Ledoyen, and uh, who else is who is the woman in that? Is it Diane Kruger? Oh, I was thinking um, of George Went. No, it was definitely a woman. Anyway, okay. um, uh, but he also made a movie back in the 90s um, with Virginie Ledoyen, late 90s, I think. Maybe it was early 2000s, uh, called The Single Girl that I definitely recommend people check out. Um, here he is, uh, this movie is called The Diary of a Chambermaid, and he is uh, reuniting with Leia Sidhu, who is becoming one of my favorite actors. Um, she was in The Lobster. Yeah, she was in The Lobster. she does a very, very good job in it. Yeah, I mean, she just... Um, She's just, uh, this is going to sound like fawning, but she's always just so cool. Do you know what I mean? Like sure. there's something really cool about Leah to do it. Like there's a reason that she plays the, uh, older lover in blue is the warmest color. Like she's the exact right person yeah. for this teenage lesbian or whatever to be enthralled by. Cause she's so cool. Has she ever worked with Jim Jarmusch? It feels like she should. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, she definitely should. She's cool enough for him. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. Few are cool, cool enough for for Jim Jarmusch. Um, so uh, this, uh, I'm I'm bad at knowing when movies take place. I'm going to say this is I don't know the 1880s. Sure. I could be, it could be the 1920s. I have no clue when okay. this movie takes place. It's a period movie. Yeah. Um, so these uh, characters are uh, dancing disco. <laughs> yeah, uh, and Leia Sadu plays a woman named Celestine who is a professional maid. She works for a service where. People come and hire her for an extended uh, or different amounts of time. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, she gets hired um, to go and be the maid at this home in the provinces out, out in the country um, to a the, the master of the house. The husband is uh, uh, handsy and lecherous and mm-hmm. buffoonish and uh, always grabbing her and groping her and coming on to her. Uh, and the, uh, mistress of the house, the the wife is a terror. She uh, asks ridiculous things of her help just to see them do it, just to mm-hmm. you know. And, and um, 
when when Leia said when Celestine gets a letter that her mother has died, the woman uh, shows a spark of sympathy and says, "That's too bad, but back to work. mustn't mustn't let it uh, uh, interfere with your work. There's nothing that we can done about it now." Like that's her whole ex- like a reaction to Leia Sidhu's mother dying. So, which is true enough. <laughs> look, know. it's true, but there's some things you don't say out loud. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, We're all thinking it. So, so the movie tells the story of her with this family, but also throughout does flashbacks to other families with which she has been placed over the course mm, of her career. Okay. So you see uh, various different um, relationships between uh, maids and uh, and. Uh, servants and whatever aristocrats or whatever uh it basically the movie is it's i i like it um it's not as good as pharaoh, pharaoh my queen which is uh one of my favorite movies maybe of the of the tens so far um but it, it's also a really cynical and misanthropic movie because it's you start off seeing um like i mentioned this this couple is they're in their each in their own way they're terrible to her and you're like, and so you sort of get get this feeling like, oh, look how the look how shitty the aristocrats te- treat the help, mm-hmm. and that's true. Um, but then as the movie goes on, you realize, oh, all these servants are fucking assholes too. Like <laughs> everyone in this movie is a piece of shit, uh, and um, they're and if they're not a piece of, piece of shit, then they're uh, pathetic or they happen to die horribly and unfairly like it's just like not a very pleasant uh view of humanity but it's uh really well made and uh i i like this guy i tend to like this guy's movies and i always um, like i said i love leia sudu mm-hmm. that's all the movies let me let's move on to tv i just really quick want to mention um modern family ended its seventh season i mentioned it because it seems like a season finale of a show that i've watched for seven years is worth mentioning but the show is just not I find myself this season watching with my wife and like when something's actually funny on the show, yeah. I turn it around being like, that was funny, right? Yeah. Like that's the point where that the show is at, uh, now it's if, if I watch the Simpsons these days, that's kind of how I am. Like I'll be watching it and something laugh out loud, funny happens. I'm like, Hey, <laughs> look at you. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's very much. Uh, what I have you you uh, discovered a new show this week well I will say that officially I only have one show to talk about in any real way but I did mention that I watched a few episodes of the old X-Men cartoon from when we were kids and and while that animation leaves a lot to be desired I will say that the storytelling and the stories that they are telling are actually very mature um, and it's a cartoon that definitely does not talk down to its audience like it it's dealing with some pretty uh pretty big stuff and i think it just sort of assumes kids will just rise to that level and uh and i don't think that's something i realized at the time i simply rose to that level and followed along with what was happening uh and then also i won't say that i watched saturday night live but i did watch a handful of sketches from this most recent saturday night live one was making the rounds called farewell mr bunting okay uh which is I, without spoiling anything, I will say it is a dead-on parody of Dead Poet Society. Oh, okay. Um, with a that sounds del- like it's up my alley. Uh, absolutely. With a delightful twist that made me laugh very hard. And, uh, and even though the twist is not anything particularly amazing, it really does uh, 
they set everything up so well. That's the thing. Like if you're going to have things take a, a crazy left turn, but the left turn is just like, okay, well we knew something like this was going to go on. You need to lull people in by just so perfectly recreating this thing. And it feels like dead poet society. Like it is spot on. That's great for Saturday Night Live to have a sketch that has uh, a definite, like intentional ending as yes. opposed to the normal Saturday Night Live uh, methodology, which is premise, seven minutes or something way too yeah. long for a sketch of riffing on that premise yeah. and then a lazy tag at the end. That's what the normal Saturday Night Live from formula I, is. From what I can gather, it sounds like the last couple of seasons of SNL have been pretty solid. Like that they've, they've settled into a good cast, good writers. Uh, sounds like they're doing some good political stuff. I've watched a few sketches here and there. Um, they're doing great with Hillary Clinton Daryl Hammond's around, so they've got themselves a they've got themselves a good Donald Trump there. Larry uh, David keeps showing up as Bernie <laughs> Sanders, like so. At the very least, they've got that. But I did watch another I, sketch. I watched the one ep- the episode that Ariana Grande hosted uh, a couple months back. I don't um, think I even know who that is. Well, she's a terrific talent, as it turns okay. out. I feel like I'm five years behind the times. Like everyone who's young is like, yeah, obviously Ariana Grande is like whatever. But I just knew she was like a singer who used to have a either a Disney or a Nickelodeon show. I don't know the oh, difference okay. between Disney and Nickelodeon. That's how well, different companies. Yeah. That's how out of touch I am. Um, but, uh, turns out, yeah, Erin Grande is phenomenally talented mm. and she did a, they did a celebrity family feud, uh, sketch okay. where she played Jennifer Lawrence and hit exactly on all the things that annoy me about Jennifer Lawrence. And so it was, uh, that was delightful. I'll have to look into that. They did do a thing that I feel like you would particularly appreciate. And apparently this is not a one-off sketch. This is a thing that they come back to a few times. And it is, uh, like high school theater showcase. Okay. Where it's like, you know, basically a blank stage and like a bunch of like high school theater kids dressed in black. And so they're presenting this thing for all intents and purposes. You could call it like a recital for their parents where they present a number of, uh, of short plays, um, that they wrote themselves. Mm -hmm. And so each play, as we all were in high school, and especially if you were in theater, you really think you've got it worked out. You uh-huh. really think you're super edgy. And so they do this thing. The one that I remember, um, and there are a number of really good ones, but the one that I remember is when they say, like, it's like, here's a rich person's grocery store. And so it shows somebody who is like uh, like a cashier and you have a number of rich people walking through and like miming like a, a thing that is being scanned and that mm-hmm. they're paying for. And one is something to the effect of it's like, it's like uh, one not guilty verdict, please. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then one and then the, the last person says, uh says uh one general election please and so they they go beep and they all say beep of course Uh and so when they do that they all look at the at the audience and go wow (laughs) it's just it is like spot on like it's all this shit that i hated about theater students in in high school and college and i think you would appreciate it a great deal um but the real thing that i watched all right let's get into it all right i'm so excited and this has this germinated when i was leaving last week yeah yeah so uh off mic we got yeah we got done recording uh and we entered uh the living room and my wife was watching uh an episode of uh project runway Mm -hmm. and uh 
And I decided as I, because like I hadn't spent a lot of time with uh, Jen that week. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit and watch this with her. I probably will not enjoy it. But Jen likes when I will watch her, when I watch her stuff. So I sat and watched it. And immediately I'll say this. I got Project Runway and America's Next Top Model mixed up uh, for years. I thought both were modeling shows. Right. I did not know this was about fashion in the sense of design. Design and creation, yeah. I did not know that. And within one episode, you know, which I only caught the tail end of. And then she said, I'm going to watch another one. Do you want to watch it with me? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And immediately I realized that, that, of course, I love Survivor. And I love Amazing Race. And, you know, so she was watching season 13. So by this time, it's kind of a well-oiled machine. They've got yeah. the formula down. And if you watch, it, if you watch uh, a lot of episodes in a row, you realize, like, wow, they really repeat this stuff over and over again. But uh, so there's the structure of a competitive reality show, which I respond to. But the thing that those other shows are missing is creativity. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I enjoy. And I like watching the creative process. And that's what you see in this. Yeah. Now, it's very truncated, you know, because you're only seeing a little bit of each person. But the more you watch, the fewer designers mm-hmm. there are. And so you get to see more in depth the things that they do. And you come to, in the same way that you and I are, you know, big into the auteur theory. And we understand that, like, a director has his signature there are designers that have their own signature, which is yeah. something that I think I probably understood in a general sense. But when you actually see that signature evolve, something they kind of have at the beginning, but the nature of this reality, sh- the nature of this competition really forces you to find that voice or at least uh, harness it and sharpen it. And so by the end, like all of these people are solid, solid designers who have taken risks, but also have, have, uh, firmly fallen into the thing they are good at and the mm-hmm. thing that they will be known for. And, you know, there are the people that you like and the people you don't like uh, as far, but I still have respect for all of them because it's also fun to see people who are exceptionally good at something I don't know how to do. Cause it's not merely that they can design this stuff. It's that they can also put it together. You know, they all know how to sew and they all just know, they just instinctively know how the human body Right. How things will sit on the human body and stuff. So we watched the whole season in, in a few days. I was very excited. Um, I'm sure we'll probably watch more seasons of it at some point. Um, but I really, really enjoyed it. And, I'm glad. And I'm glad. I really enjoyed the, I think for me, the, it's for all intents and purposes, storyboard to finish film, you know, because uh-huh. you're seeing the sketches and then you're seeing the, they go and get their, their fabrics and yeah, then you they get, go to mood. They go they to say, mood. Say, yeah. They say hi to Swatch. They say hi to Swatch. Took me a while to figure out that that was the dog's name. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and then, you know, they come up with their initial designs and then they get input from Tim and then they revise it. And then what they put out there is the best they can do in certain circumstances. And the thing that really got me that I thought was really interesting and that fits completely into certain concepts of creativity there are people that excel when they are given guidelines, mm-hmm. which is to say given limitations. It's like, okay, you need to do this. And they do great. But then when it comes time for sort of an avant-garde thing, which is do whatever you want, right. we're not going to give you any guidelines. 
the not a, like the minute they are given free reign there was one guy who just experienced like complete block like he had no idea mm. where to start and that is a thing that we've talked about with film is that uh sometimes studio limitations budget, budget limitations actually cause a, a filmmaker to think way more creatively and like hit it out of the park whereas if you're given an unlimited budget and total control, sometimes you wind up with the Star Wars prequels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. So, it's it's fun to see the creative process and see that it's not really... The process itself, when pared down, is not that different from one medium to another. Yeah. So, I really enjoyed it. Do you, so, now you're on board Tim Gunn, National Treasure, right? Yes. Um, Although it is... <laughs> You know, it takes you a while to not even warm up to him, but to kind of get him. Like there's a, there's one moment when he's looking at a garment and he's like, he's like, this makes me smile. And I was just like, well, he's not actually smiling. You know, (laughs) I remember thinking like, like, uh, you're, you're not selling that Tim. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I enjoy him and, and, and it is fun that, that like the way he is presented or at least when I first showed up is that he's sort of the no nonsense. He's sort of the, the what's it, Gordon Ramsay or whatever it is, but no, because but he's, he's not that he's be, not a judge. He is very a mentor. Compassionate. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. on their side. Yeah. Um, and, is, he, and he allows them to disagree with him. I love that. Yeah. Who is your favorite of the judges? Uh, you got now you, cause you haven't watched the older seasons with Michael Kors. Right. So you've got Heidi who's host slash judge. Yeah. Zach Posen and yeah. Nina Garcia. Um, I think I probably like, it's hard to know which ones I, I like. They each kind of, they each have their own way of expressing their opinions. Um, I think I probably wound up agreeing with Nina the most. Yeah, I think I did too. Um, Even though I have, Zach bothered I have me for it. a number of reasons. Is and one the, of them, you, we, you and I talked about yeah. this because we, we've, uh, this is one of the rare weeks we've, where we've actually seen each other between recordings. Yeah. So I saw you though, this weekend, uh, did you notice Zach Posen? Because they now do the thing, and this is relatively recent, the last few seasons, where once they've narrowed it down to your three, uh, your top three designs or whatever, the models walk up to the judges and they get to the judges get to inspect yeah. the garments up close while they're on the models. Yeah. And Zach Posen shows no sense of decorum or hesitation to just grope these women and tug at them and poke at them. Yeah. And it's, it, it makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. The vibe and he does it. He so brazenly. Yeah. Like the vibe that I got was just like, are you looking like, are you looking for which orphan you're going to adopt in a Dickens novel? <laughs> yeah. Just like, it's like, let's see your teeth. You know, it just has that vibe to it. Yeah. And, uh, and it does, I'll tell you where it really got me. There comes a moment when they have to actually get models off the street. So they're real people. Yeah. Now, he's not quite as handsy with them, yeah. but he's still pretty handsy. I'm like, you leave them alone, sir. Yeah. They did not agree to this. They did not know that they were getting themselves into this. Yeah. And while I recognize that you need to kind of get in there and feel what the fabric is, I but get that. Heidi and Nina are able to do it without being, I know, uh, you know, the, I creeps th- about there's it. almost, he goes in sort of with, this is going to sound weird and I don't like to use the word, but almost with a sense of entitlement. It's, it's like, well, I'm a judge. This is what I'm supposed to do. Right. And, and yeah. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. And I just, I don't care for it. Yeah. No, thank you. All right. And I don't like his hair. <laughs> All right. Uh, the other show I watched, uh, we'll talk about it real quick and then I'll be, uh, we got to get out of here. Um, the last man on earth, 
finish its second season. It's stellar second season. Okay. Um, I feel like every time we talk about the last minute, I say the same thing. So I'm not going to go on too long, but uh, just, I'm so glad this show got a second season and now has a, th- a third season. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that Fox is letting Will Forte be Will Forte and do sure. what he wants to do on this show, which is, uh, it, you know, I, I've said before, um, a lot of the middle section of the first season when I almost gave up on the show just seemed like sort of standard, um, sitcom material just in a new location, mm-hmm. new setting, you know? Um, but now it's gotten to the point where it is, uh, it does have some sitcom premises, but it also has Will Forte weirdness to it. Every mm-hmm. week when we want to watch the show with my wife, we have the same like thought, like, can you imagine someone who has never seen the show before flipping channels and landing on this? Like some yeah. weird, like, <laughs> like there's a scene where, uh, in this final episode where Jason Sudeikis is, there's a, there's like a, almost like a ghost, um, like the movie ghost, like pottery scene. Yeah. That's like a montage of Jason Sudeikis lovingly cutting and trimming Will Forte's hair and beard to the tune of the song falling slowly from once. (laughs) Um, And it's the thing is, if you've been watching the show, it's both funny and really touching that it's happening. Yeah. But if you were just to fall in, it'd be so weird. Sure. Um, But it's also, it's, it's, it's gotten weirder in its comedy. And also it has gotten more and more aware of the shitty situation. These people are in that. These are sort of the last people in America as far as we are on earth, as far as we know, um, none of them happens to be a medical doctor. Mm. Um, they don't really have any way of taking care of themselves. They're kind of just like going through the motions of their, of the life they had. They're still just eating what food is left. You know, no. they're not really becoming like hunter gatherers. They've moved into a house in Malibu and hooked up solar panels. So they have electricity, you know, no. they make, you know, they use the, the refrigerator and they watch TV, they on they watch the DVR or whatever. Like they're still living a life, yeah. uh, and it's becoming increasingly scary and sad. Um, hmm. And the show is aware of that. I got to go back and watch this thing. Yeah, like, I only watched I think the first couple episodes. Thought they were great, and then I had heard people say that it kind of it tails off a little bit after that. But then it does. Then it gets, picks back up. The, yeah, the middle, it, like the first season is on sort of like a like a reverse parabola. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. It, it like it gets it gets pretty dumb about halfway through, mm-hmm. and then it works its way back to being good. But the second season uh, has been fantastic. Okay, all right. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 